Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Uh, so hear now the Word of the Lord. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. And what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say, you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, well, before I jump into that text, let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, we pull out your word, we bring your word, because we believe your, in your word is life. Uh, that all of creation is, is, are things you spoke into being. And so your word contains power and truth and vitality. And so now we pray that power and truth and life would get worked into our life. So do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, someone came up to you and asked you, who are you? What would you tell them? Uh, Later this week, you're sipping your coffee at uh, your favorite coffee shop, finishing your homework. They ask you, who who are you? Do I know you? Uh, What would be your answer? What is your defining identity? I remember uh, rolling into high school in 1999 having no idea who I was. Uh, The only thing I knew, I was a drummer. 
And so uh, about, about 98% of my classes through all of my schooling, I behaved really well. Never got in trouble. But drummers are, are instigators. We cause trouble and crack jokes. So I was kicked out of my band class probably a dozen times during my last two years of high school because I lived into my identity as a drummer. Almost became a different person in that class. Who are you? This morning we're beginning a, a new series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling uh, A Holy Mess. A vision of church from this ancient letter by a pastor whose name was Paul that he wrote to a church in an ancient city called Corinth. And the letter begins by addressing this question to this church. Who are you? Church, who are you? And the identity that they are given, it's an identity that every Christian has. And Paul has a couple of things to say about their identity in the beginning. That The first reality Paul describes them as is a mess. Those of us who are in church, we are a mess. And if you've been in church long enough, you have experienced the mess. My first memory that I still have with me was around sixth grade, where I was at a student ministry night with about 30 guys, high schoolers and middle schoolers, playing, the small, uh, or playing a game in the small gym at our church. I don't remember the game. The only thing I remember was it involved bouncing a ball off of a wall. And as we were playing this game, a youth leader rolled into the gym or spoke into the gym and, and yelled at us, telling us to stop playing that game and bouncing the ball off the wall like that. And I remember that because that was weird. We were in a gym. Like gyms are made to have balls bouncing off walls. Like this is the purpose for which this room was made. So we all look at this guy, and our youth pastor looks at us like, it's okay. And he goes to talk to him. So we kept playing, and that guy disagreed. And, and things escalated very quickly with him yelling at my youth pastor, shut this game na down now, or I'm going to the elder board. And we all just stood there, dead silent, shocked. <laughs> the church is a mess, and we all have stories that story, at least to me now, is kind of funny. Some of our stories are, are not funny at all. They're very painful. And the church writes to this church in the city of Corinth that is, is a bit of a mess. And he goes right to it in verse 10. He says to you, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I'm pleading with you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever said that to anyone else? I'm begging you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't act the way you're acting. Like, I don't think I've ever gotten to that level of intensity. But that's where Paul basically begins this letter. Agree with one another in what you say. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And so you're probably wondering, well, what's the nature of their divisions? And we'll get to them over the course of the next uh, couple of uh, months. What are, they, what are they dividing over? And the list is pretty long. The list includes a party spirit where 
There are coalitions and factions within the church, each advocating for their own vision of ministry within the life of the church. They're disagreeing over issues of church discipline and and leadership. They're dividing over how to think about marriage and sexuality, divorce, and what to do in cases of troubled marriages. They're dividing over cultural issues, what it looks like to follow Jesus in a culture that's hostile to Christianity. They're divided over uh, leadership of men and women. How do, do men and women serve alongside one another in the life of the church? They're divided over what worship should look like, who should speak and when and how. They're divided over certain kind of spiritual gifts, how God's spirit works in his church. I mean, have you ever heard of a church dividing over things like that? But the first division he addresses, we're not, we're not totally sure what, it, what it's about. It's in verse 12, and all we know is, is each faction has a, an appointed leader. That There's some people walking around the church saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos, who was a, a pastor who came to Corinthian, uh, the Corinth church, after Paul planted it. And another, I follow Cephas, who's uh, Peter from the Gospels. And then the the super spiritual ones, like, I'm above all of you because I just follow Christ. There's always one of those people around. And people, uh, they've divided along these factions. And so what, what's going on? What's happened? And some uh, theologians think, well, they're, they're all gathering around their favorite teacher, pastor, and these teachers have certain theological distinctives, certain styles or visions of the church. And so they've divided along their favorite celebrity pastor. And that's not too shocking. I, I still see that uh, today in our context. Other theologians see in this section uh, differences among ethnicities among the Corinthian church. See, Corinth was located in a, on an isthmus, which meant it was a major port city, a place of major trade. So you could dock your ship on one side of Corinth, uh, load all of your cargo, and then just take it about three or four miles across land to another ship, and then sail from there. And it would save you hundreds of miles of sailing. So Corinth was this diverse place of many different uh, populations. It was multi-ethnic. It was cosmopolitan. And, and some see those dynamics in what Paul is saying. Because he names three factions with three names. First is Paul, which is Paul's Roman name. Second is Apollos, which is a Greek name representing Greek culture. And then it's interesting that Paul doesn't say Peter. He says Cephas, which is Peter's Jewish name. And so there are many theologians who say this is a cosmopolitan city. All of a sudden, all of these different ethnicities have become Christians and they're trying to do community uh, together and they're divided along those ethnic lines, Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture. And so we don't really know, and that's actually not what I want to get into this morning, because what I think is more important is not the nature of the disagreement itself, but how Paul shows us how as Christians you and I can live in the church in such a way where we don't become divisive people who make a mess of this community. See, live long enough in the church, divisions are inevitable. It could be over a dumb game the youth group is playing. It could be over building campaign choices. It could be over a decision that church leadership makes. And it raises the question, 
How do we avoid just being one more mess? A place built on factions and coalitions, rivalries. And Paul says a couple of things in the text that, that stand out to me about how we address the mess. And the first is, is notice how many times Paul mentions Jesus in the first ten verses. As I was reading that text, I almost felt like I was beginning to borderline curse with the name Jesus. Because I was saying it so much. It's ten times in nine verses. And I believe that's crucial to being a non-divided church. To have the center of our identity as a community be in Jesus Christ and nothing else. To be Christian is According to Paul, to be one who calls on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It might be my favorite line in this whole passage. Who is a Christian, Paul says? Verse 2, everyone who calls on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is inviting us as Christians to live so that the church is centered on Jesus Christ. And that's a belief I have. When Jesus is the center of a church, a church will not be divided. When Jesus is the center of a church, a church will not be divided. I'm not saying we will not disagree, but we will not be divided. And when a church is divided, it's a sign that there are Christians within the community whose center is not Jesus, but something else. A secondary issue of theology, spiritual pride or arrogance, a preference for how we believe ministry should look from our own vantage point. But once Jesus is no longer the leader of the community, well, we need a new leader. And someone else other than Jesus becomes that functional leader. It's how it, it always works in the church. Someone starts lifting that secondary issue high, starts talking around to other people, building the case, building the coalition, and we will do exactly what this person or this group of people believe we should do. Hence, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. And that's what makes what Paul does here so, so powerful to me. Because as we read through 1 Corinthians, it will become clear, Paul is not well liked among most of this church. This community finds him unimpressive. Many in Corinth don't think Paul's a particularly good pastor. He's definitely not a good preacher and he's a questionable servant of God. So people are opposing him. Things he's taught and said. Claimed he doesn't really preach and teach what you should. But Paul has good news in the midst of this mess. He has a coalition supporting him against that opposition. And that's good news, right? Paul has his faction, his coalition, that can defend him and keep his reputation in place. And that's what we all want, right? Is, is a coalition that defends us. A faction that supports us. So what does Paul think of all this? What does he think of his coalition? He hates it. And he spends his entire time rebuking them. Not the people who are opposing him. He tells them, stop dividing the church in my name. He doesn't even speak to the followers of Apollos, Cephas, or the, the Jesus-centered crowd. He doesn't speak to the division they're causing. He only speaks to the people who like him. And he says to them, stop causing division in my name. 
He's saying, I don't want any coalition that divides the church in my name. That's where he goes in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? I'm not your leader, Paul says. Jesus is. He was crucified for you. You were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not my name. But a divisive Christian will always draw you into themselves and their leadership. What they need you to do for them. To make them the center. To give them power. To get you to believe what they want you to believe. So you will be a good and loyal member of their coalition. To get things done in the church the way they really ought to get done. Beware of leaders like that. Long for Christians who desire to do what Paul did. Who said to his coalition, turn to Christ. Follow him. <laughs> Make him the censor. He was crucified for you. Ba- his, his name is yours, not my name. Stop causing division in my name. Paul's entire vision of ministry is to bring people to Jesus. And those type of people never cause division in the church. Because of all the things that we fight about in church, uh, like ministry preferences, music styles, what games you play in the gym. Those are all means to an end. They don't really matter in the end. What matters is Jesus Christ, the one who has made us his own. And when we're gathered around Jesus, it's much easier to do what Paul asks of the Corinthian church. What leads the church to be a place of unity and care, perfectly united in mind and thought, which he says in verse 10. And that gets to the other piece of advice I think Paul offers us for how to end division in the church. When we listen first, a church will not be divided. When we listen first, a church will not be divided. I, I love the way that the NASB translates that phrase. If you, you got that old school uh, translation straight from the Greek. Uh, it, it, it translates the language there uh, that, you made, that you may be made complete in the same mind. Paul's asking this church, be complete in the same mind. So what, what, what does he mean? Well, on the one hand, they, they clearly believe things that are not true. And Paul is going to correct their theology. Right belief matters. Right theology matters. It's a part of this letter, and we'll talk a lot about that over the next few weeks. So Paul's, that's one thing he's saying, but, but he's also saying something else. That speaks, I believe, to the need to listen. To hear those in the church who disagree with you on non-essential matters. So there's some some theology we just can't disagree on. We'll talk a lot about that. But there's other stuff we can disagree on. And it's really important that we listen well. Because when we listen well to someone else and really engage them, a couple of things happens in us. First, we should be able to repeat back to them in their own words what they actually believe and think, what they care about, what's important to them. We become complete in the same mind as them because we know know what's on their mind, what matters to them, even if we don't agree with their secondary preferences and theological conclusions. And the second thing is when we see that, when we see into and, and be made complete in the mind of another person, we begin to see that the people who disagree with us are not irrational people who would obviously fail a basic IQ test. 
But they believe things deeply because of their history, their story, their study, their lives. When you actually listen to someone, your pride is destroyed. The idea that your position is well-reasoned, completely obvious, and only someone who ain't paint chips as a child would disagree with you, you know that's not true. But one of my experiences of divisions in the church is the factions, the coalitions, never talk to one another. And so spiritual priority or spiritual pride and arrogance grows and grows because you actually don't know the mind of the person who sees a different thing than you do. For example, a couple weeks ago, uh, someone called me and said, Hey, Tim, I'm, I'm really struggling because someone told me that you have a theological belief. And if you have that belief, I can't stay here. And I was like, oh, wow, t- tell me. Um, and she told me. And I don't believe what she thought that I believed. And honestly, I don't remember talking about it over the last two years. <laughs> it's a very distant, I would say, uh, it's a, an important but secondary issue. But I give her a lot of credit just for calling me and asking. So much division would end in the church if everyone had the same spirit my dear sister had. It just called me a couple of weeks ago. Let's talk. What do you believe? What are you thinking? And that's why I hope you, I've been here two years now, and, and there's a reason why I, I stand in the same place every Sunday morning. That what's really important to me as a pastor, any pastor, is approachability. Come and ask me anything. <laughs> because nothing ends the vision in the church like just speaking to the people whom we feel divided from. The people with whom we are disagreeing. And we will probably most times not come away agreeing with everything. But I believe our spiritual pride will get destroyed in that conversation. Because that's what division is ultimately rooted in, isn't it? It's pride. I see what you don't. I see what you can't. You're not as capable and able as an intelligent me. You don't have the history I have, the education I have. You don't have anything to offer me because you're not as good, smart, or as learned as... It's pride. It's pride. And so we build coalitions and don't listen to one another. And end up believing things about others that most of the time are not true. We're of a different mind than them because we actually don't have any idea what their mind believes because we've never... But we speak to a lot of other people. We don't speak to them. But when we go and speak to someone, when we listen, we see they often have good reasons for why they feel the way they feel. They are trying to follow Jesus the best they can. Maybe we've misunderstood them. So Paul says, be complete in the same mind. Know their minds. <laughs> listen to them, which is... Which is, I think, again, why Paul stresses Jesus at the center. Because when we're kneeling before Jesus, when he's the center of our life, all of our games of division are shown for what they really are. I love the way my professor, D.A. Carson, puts this. He says, in the light of the cross, there really is no place for self-promotion. In the endless games we play to prove our superiority over one another, The kind of superiority on which so much division finally rests. You just can't be a spiritually prideful person in the presence of Jesus. (laughs) Like, I'm a pretty good person. Then you go talk to Jesus and you're like, who am I? (laughs) I am far from from him. And Paul lived this. He had no superior towards other people. 
And proof of this, I, I believe, is, is the person he names at the beginning of the letter. So come with me on a little rabbit trail. Uh, Paul says, I, uh, verse 1, Paul is, that's his intro. I'm, hey, I'm Paul. I'm writing you this letter. But then he says, and our brother Sosthenes, he's right next to me as I'm writing this letter. So we should be asking, who's Sosthenes? And that's an interesting question. As Paul arrived in Corinth and began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue at Corinth, and there was a leader in that synagogue who hated what Paul was saying. He opposed Paul with everything he had. He kicked Paul out of the synagogue first. And then when Paul kept preaching Jesus outside of the synagogue uh, and didn't stop, this man went to the leaders of Corinth and attacked Paul and tried to get Paul thrown into prison or worse, wanted violence done against Paul. And what was this man's name? Who opposed Paul so fiercely, he called on the local police to do violence against Paul. Who was that? Sosthenes. It's in Acts 18. Only things didn't go as Sosthenes planned. Instead of beating up Paul, the leaders of Corinth rebuked Sosthenes and the other synagogue leaders, saying, these are disputes among your people. Leave us alone. And then the people of the city of Corinth, who witnessed this, who were obviously anti-Semitic, used this occasion to start beating Sosthenes in front of the leaders of the city of Corinth. And they all let it happen. Sosthenes suffered a brutal beating at the hands of the city of Corinth. But now he's here. He's a Christian. What happened? My guess, and this is only a guess, but it's an educated guess. I believe Paul went and visited him. The man who tried to do violence against Paul, who's probably laid up in need of medical care for many, many days, Paul I believe, went and visited him when he was recovering and loved the man who did violence to him. How else would he end up as a close friend of Paul sitting next to him as Paul writes this letter to Corinth, most likely from Ephesus, Sosthenes now on mission for Jesus all over the world because when he tried to do violence against the church, the church responded with non-retaliation and love. When your life is centered in Jesus, you will listen and love and be a unifying force to the world around you. Even to the people who you disagree strongly with. Even to the people who might seek to do you harm in your life. And so yes, the church is, is a mess. But that's, that's not where Paul actually starts. He actually starts somewhere else. He starts by calling them saints. Church, we are saints. In verse 2, if you got uh, the King James Version, they're the only ones who get this right. Some of you, that'll be music to your ears. But it's uh, called to be as holy people. It's called to be saints. You are called, if you are in the way of Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, you are called a saint. So imagine that. Someone walks up to you this week. Hey, who are you? Are you a saint? What would you tell them? It depends, of course, on what you think of when you think of the word saint. And when I hear the word saint, I think of a place in Missouri called Conception Abbey in the middle of nowhere. It's a Benedictine monastery I would occasionally visit while I was in Kansas City um, for a day of prayer. And I loved their basilica. It's a beautiful place. It's the one thing I believe the... The Catholics have on us Protestants. 
We evangelical Protestants tend to view church buildings only on how we can spend the least amount of money on them. We don't really buy into beauty or reverence, spaces of transcendence. I think we might be wrong about that. So I loved, I loved being there. And I would sit in that basilica and pray, surrounded by mosaics, paintings of the saints. There was a mosaic, it was my favorite, of St. Benedict, who founded a, mo- a monastic order that has now lasted 1,500 years. Imagine that, starting a business, a school, or a church, anything that lasts 1,500 years beyond your life. <laughs> He obviously lived a compelling, incredible life. It's inspired people for 1,500 years to take up his vision of the Christian life. We all agree, that's a saint. Uh, it's, a, it's a Catholic, uh, Conception Abbey was a, a Catholic um, place. And so St. Mary was there, obviously. And imagine the holiness of a woman who gives birth to the Son of God, raises him, endures the shame of her community, but faithfully raises our Messiah. That's a saint. And that's how most of us think of saints. Extraordinary, abnormal Christians. That is not how Paul thinks of saints. He sees you and the church as saints. He looks at this mess of a community and his first words to them are, You are saints. Which is incredible. This church has large factions of people who do not like Paul, do not like his style, his personality. They've been a mess, divided, quarreling, jealous of one another. And Paul says, you need to remember, you are called saints. So I love the way that theologian Kenneth Bailey explains this this tension at the beginning of the letter. He writes, the Corinthians are identified as those who were made holy, who were called out as saints. They were getting drunk at Holy Communion and shouting insults at each other. One of them was sleeping with his mother-in-law. The prophets, preachers, were all talking at once in their worship services. And some of the women were chatting and not listening to anyone. They had split into factions. Some thought that Polish language was more important than historical realities like the cross. Others denied the resurrection, yet Paul calls them saints. I love that. Paul begins this letter not by saying what's wrong with them. He'll get to that in verse 10, and it is pretty quick. But the first nine verses are about their sainthood. And Paul, to be clear, doesn't call us saints because of anything about us. He's not saying, look at your life. You're so much better than everyone else. You're saints. It's not what he says. What he says is Jesus Christ nine times in ten verses. And what does he say about Jesus Christ? He says, Jesus Christ is sanctifying you. He's changing you from the inside out. Jesus Christ wants you to call on his name. That's, you're saved because you call on the name of Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus is your unending source of grace and peace. In Jesus Christ, God is going to keep you to the end through everything you experience in this life. And he's going to make you blameless on the day when the Lord Jesus returns to us. That's verse 8. And verse 9, Jesus wants fellowship with you. He wants to be in community with you. What makes a person a saint is not the extraordinary things we might manage to muster up in this life. It's the extraordinary things that Jesus has done for us for all eternity. That our identity as saints is a gift from Jesus Christ. What an identity. 
And my guess is many of us in this room, we know, we know, we're, we're not, we're a mess. <laughs> we're not the parent we should be. We're not the coworker that we could be. Not the student we hope to be, and we're not the congregant that we long to be. And so my first word from this series in this book to you this morning is not uh, feel bad about yourself. It's, it's in Christ you are a saint. Embrace it. And live into who you really are. Or if you're not yet a Christian, and you see your life as a mess, become a saint. Follow Jesus. Take up life with him. And so this series in 1 Corinthians, it's going to be an honest conversation about how we in the church can become a mess. But that's not ultimately what this series is about. The series is a calling for us to live into our identity as saints. We are holy. We are set apart. We have been saved and kept by Jesus Christ to the very end of the ages. And we are to be his life and his presence to our world. And if you take up life with Jesus, you will have a saintly impact into this world. I have a small group of guys I've been meeting with on Thursday morning. In the last few weeks, we've been just listening to everyone's story. And one of the questions that we, we ask or answer is, hey, when and how did Jesus show up in your life? And my assumption for most of these guys was, because uh, I, I know them, was, would just be like, hey, I've been a Christian my whole life, and he's just been kind of around and, and always there. And, and I, I could not have been more wrong. Um, I've heard stories of violence and death, drugs and alcoholism, imploding marriages. And then inevitably, a saint arrives on the scene. Saint Mabel, praying for a friend of mine above a garage in the Dakotas, altering the entire history of a life, changing generation of a good friend of mine's life and family trajectory. I had no idea. This man in the small group I'm with who I really respect, his entire life course history altered by St. Mabel. There should be a mosaic of St. Mabel somewhere, kneeling in prayer in a garage or above a garage, altering the course of human history, my friend's family. I heard the story of St. Maxine and St. George praying for their nephew and a man moved to tears who didn't know for years as he wandered about in his life. Two saints, his uncle and aunt, praying for him before he came to Christ. No idea. Uh, two saints intervening for him in heaven on behalf of earth. In Christ, you are holy. You are a saint, so put away your mess. And live into Jesus and who he has made you to be. And the next time someone asks you, who are you? Tell them the truth. They're speaking with a saint. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, we a mess <laughs> are being sanctified, made holy in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the Son of God, from before the time began, saw us, named us, and called us saint. 
And so for those of us, that's true. We follow Jesus. Uh, would, would we, uh, in a moment now, come to the table and receive the saintly meal, the body of Jesus given for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. So we have no question he will keep us firm to the end. He will eradicate the mess in us. He will make us into what we all long to be one day. And for those of us who uh, we haven't yet taken up that life with Jesus, we know you're pursuing them. We know you love them. And we just pray uh, for open hearts to receive him. And I pray that for all of us right now, open hearts to receive the ministry of Jesus and to live into our saint, saintness, our sainthood. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.